just wanted to introduce Dr. Benjamin Scripture. Uh, ben received his PhD in biochemistry from the University of Notre Dame in 1998. He graduated from Grace Theological Seminary uh, with an MDN also from University of California at Berkeley in 1976. Um, he has his radio program, Scripture on Creation, uh, which is broadcast on the Good News Network and in the southeastern US and on in the Wilkins Radio Network. Um, ben has been one of the teaching elders in Bethany Fellowship in Warsaw, Indiana since 1987. And uh, he also serves as in the Board of Trustees at Emmaus Bible College. He has been married to Dr. Karen Scripture, who is here uh, since 1978, and they have two children and eight grandchildren. Hello. I know the first question that I will answer is yes, my name is Scripture. No, I did not change it to Scripture. It's been our family name for as long as we can figure out, way back in Scotland in the 1700s. So, you see this back here, Scripture on Creation. I, I want to make certain that we understand that I'm going to be sharing some things from my own experience in various aspects of science, especially in the life sciences, but whatever I share is not important compared to this one. And the scripture on creation that I want to emphasize is what this scripture says about creation. I, I guess if I just read something, it would be the scripture reading, right? Um, but uh, I'll tell you what, I hope that you know what Psalm 8 is about. That was supposed to be the reading. What David comes to when he considers the heavens, uh, the moon and the stars, which God had created, which God ordained. His response then was, you know, who am I? What is man that you care one bit about, about me, about us? And yet, of course, we know that God cares deeply for us. So much so that to have that solidarity, to have that representation uh, for us, he became a man. So one of the things that I hope that you keep uh, in the back of your mind uh, as we look at some of these things, and some of them are going to be complex, don't, don't just glaze over, just let these things boggle your mind and remember that God knew all these things, He created all these things, and He's that one that was born in a manger that died on the cross and cares about you. So we don't have to understand all these things to have them... Uh, overwhelm us with just how great God is and then how caring and loving He is. I also have a podcast. I won't say anything more than that other than uh, you, you can't hear Scripture on Creation on the radio, but you could hear it uh, on the internet as a podcast. And it's just Scripture on Creation. Every aspect of my ministry out there, if you look at Scripture on Creation, you'll, you'll find it. So let's think about what we're going to consider this morning for the next uh, 35 minutes or so. I, I uh, <laughs> try to get as much in this short period of time as I can, and uh, we're just touching the surface on a couple of things. We're going to consider creation 
faith and science, the, the relationship between those ideas, those things. You know, there's a battle going on for the control of people's hearts and minds. And it's a, it's a supernatural battle, really, but it takes place within the context of human interaction. This battle is described, the supernatural battle is described in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read it. Chapter 2, verse 4, the God of this world, who is not the Lord Jesus Christ at this point, notice that's a little g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel. The unregenerate heart and mind is blinded, and it's not even a passive thing. I mean, the devil is trying to keep people unaware, blind to the gospel that we talked about so much this morning, to the person of Christ, who he was, what he did. Over the last 150 years, a major part of this battle has been within the arena of science. The enemy using science to try and dupe people into thinking that there's no God, there's no need for God. Everything that we see could have just come, come into existence by chance. Random errors and boom, look what, look what we've got. How amazing. This uh, major battle often is between what is called science, true science, is not an enemy of the believer whatsoever, and in fact, it's our ally. Amen. But uh, what is called science and religion or faith is put at odds with one another amongst a large portion of the scientific community. Here's a quote. And when it was stated, this was controversial. I mean, this was like, wait a minute. Anybody got an idea who said this? Many may have said it, but famously, Charles Darwin said this, science has nothing to do with Christ. And yet from the Word of God, we understand Christ is the fountain of knowledge. That's what science is, the pursuit of knowledge. Uh, but uh, Darwin said, you know, th these two ideas, faith, Christ, the Bible, and science, they are, they are in opposite directions. Here's the uh, context of this quote. It was many years after Darwin published The Origin of Species. He said science, somebody was asking him about what he thought about the afterlife. You know, what's going to happen to us when we die? He said, science has nothing to do with Christ. For myself, I do not believe that there ever has been any revelation. Now, ponder that. He believes that none of this, any word of it, was the Word of God revealed to us through the writers. No revelation. As for a future life, every man must judge for himself between conflicting vague probabilities. So, you know, come up with something, it's fine, whatever. Um, and of course, what you might think and what you might think are conflicting, but it doesn't matter because frankly, it's all just nonsense anyway. That was the place that Darwin came to later in life the thing is, this mindset of his that science and faith, science and Christ, you know, have nothing to do with one another, is entrenched in the majority of scientists, certainly not all, but the majority of scientists, and tragically, their influence 
is even infiltrated and I would say dominant in the uh, what is called the church and even in the evangelical church, aspects of evolution, whether it's uh, the universal evolution, you know, not things related to life or organismal evolution, which is what Darwin was working on, has infiltrated the evangelical church. Many, many evangelical Christian colleges teach evolution. Scientists antagonistic towards Scripture have promoted the concept that there is no place for faith in the pursuit of science. It's all got to be observed. It's all all, got to be intellectual, empirical, all these different words that describe the tools and the, the pursuits of science, which they should be. They claim that to accept supernatural creation as the cause for the origin of the universe and all the life in it is a concept based only on faith. And so, you know, you're not supposed to be applying any idea of, of faith in science. You know, we are uh, objective and there's no faith uh, involved whatsoever. This is what we are told. The thing is, there is a relationship between creation and faith, and we dare not shy away from it as a person that may want to get into a conversation with an unbeliever, with an evolutionist. Um, they go, well, I better not talk about faith because, you know, that's not allowed. Well, you've, you've abandoned what God's Word tells you about creation. There is a relationship between your faith and your acceptance to whatever level <laughs> may uh, describe you of creation. The Word of God clearly says that it is by faith we understand that God created everything. Does the verse come to mind? This one right here, Hebrews eleven three. What does it say? The faith chapter is introduced first by reminding us that creation, where everything came from, is a faith issue. It says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. Where, where does it even say that? Well, read Genesis chapter 1, and God keeps saying things. Let there be, let there be. And there they were. Well, it's only by faith that we accept that. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared. That's the Ionos. It could be the ages. The universe would probably be the word that we would generally use to interpret that particular Greek word. The worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. The relationship between creation and faith in the first place is that by faith we understand God created everything. The thing is, our understanding begins with faith, but our ability to reason, to figure things out, to observe and look, verifies that our faith is justified and that it is reasonable. Just because we begin with faith doesn't mean we're jumping off into darkness and accepting silly things like the world is flat and stuff like that. That's some you know, misguided people interpreting the Word of God incorrectly think they've got to accept. You know? That's not the kind of faith that the Bible is expecting of us. Our faith in creation, more importantly, really, in the Creator, 
is not a blind leap. The Bible does not describe faith this way. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Our current high priest of evolution, Richard Dawkins. You know, evolution has uh, various high priests as they come and go. Remember uh, Carl Sagan? Uh, Maybe uh, some of you remember a guy named Stephen Jay Gould. You know, these these, uh, high priests of evolution come and go. I I would say that the the most current one, when some new... uh, discovery that supposedly supports evolution comes along, the media all goes, and, hey, Richard, what do you think? Is this really the faith described in the Bible? No need to think or evaluate evidence? Of course not. That's not the faith the Bible presents. But that is what the skeptic, the cynic, would say of any trust, any belief in God's Word, any understanding of the truth of God. The Word instructs us to be able to defend what we understand by faith. Well, how can you do that if it's all just wishy, hopey, sort of silly, you know? I'm going to read a text I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. And so I would submit to you one of those things are if you get into a conversation, um, don't fear sharing your faith. Saying, yeah, I know that we can't go back and watch a videotape of God speaking, and there it is, you know, but it's reasonable. And in fact, it's more reasonable than what you may be accepting. Uh, I'm talking about your conversation with this person to think that the complexity that's revealed around us could just happen by accident. Nothing you observe anywhere else in your experience produces complexity even close to what we observe. By chance. I mean, if you took nine stones and piled them up, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and then took four stones and piled them up, one, two, one, two, and then took one more and piled it on the top so that you've got this little pyramid, how many people would go by and go, wow, that's really amazing how the wind and the water sort of blew those stones around and piled them up into that little pile just like that? And yet, we're talking about DNA molecules and RNA molecules and proteins and things that are mind-bogglingly complex. And the evolutionist says, those things all just sort of join together and, and they work together. And voila, we've got a cell. And then we've got uh, sponges. And then we've got fish. And we've got lizards. And we've got dogs. And we've got people. What is reasonable? And I would question this idea of there can be no faith in the pursuit of science. It's all got to be purely, quote-unquote, objective. Is there no faith involved in a kind of science that permits no involvement of a supernatural creator when considering the origin? Just just where did everything come from? The, the, The initial start of the material universe. I'm going to consider the origin of the universe just for a moment. Stephen Hawking, remember him? The man in the wheelchair with ALS. He, uh, he died just, just recently. He wrote a book 
a dozen years ago called the grand design. And that, that was tongue in cheek because basically what he's talking about is there is no design. It was all a big accident. But he called the origin of the universe in this book, the grand design. And what he proposes is the multiverse, that there are multiple universes. And, and this is becoming uh, so commonly held that now we've got movies about it. This, the new, how many of you are Marvel movie fans? You can admit it because I am. My hand's up. I love them. Um, but, you know, Doctor Strange and the, and the multiverse. Well, the newest one is all about the multiverse. This is becoming just sort of the common idea. Well, sure, there are multiple universes. We can only observe ours, but there's millions of them out there. He proposed this multiverse idea. Uh, the idea of it is that, well, then you can exclude any kind of a creator. There is no need for an originator because universes are going to pop into and out of existence spontaneously. Billions of them. So uh, there you go. You don't need a god to uh, have that. I, I, I would... Let me read something from his grand design. The central claim of the book is that the theory of quantum mechanics and the theory of relativity together help us understand how universe says, that's the key, multiple universe says, could have formed out of nothing. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists. Why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to set the universe going. Great. It's because gravity is, uh, as I recall, gravity is negative overall and matter is positive overall. And if you add the two together, the plus and the minus, you get zero. So did you know that actually the universe is nothing? <laughs> because you've got the plus and the minus and if you put it in an equation, you know, it's all about the equation. Does it balance on the right and the left? If it does, it's a valid equation. And so um, something causes the plus and the minus to separate. Boom, you've got a universe. And then you never know. We may not finish this meeting before something causes the plus and minus to go back to zero and we will be snuffed out of existence. And so this is happening continually, uncountable number of times. God, not necessary. Can we observe any of these other universes? How scientific is this? It is purely a step of, I would submit, wild faith that, that there are billions of other universes out there. Fortunately, ours is one that has the natural laws that have electrical charges and gravity and matter and atoms and the chemistry all just works just right. And, and here we are, supporting life. I'm not, I, I don't want to be too critical of it, but what I am trying to demonstrate is how much faith does that take? Just because you've got a, an equation that balances on the right and the left. It's certainly beyond any kind of observation. What's interesting is the Word of God talks about this beginning, and there is an indication that in fact the universe came into existence out of nothing, but not without a cause, not without an originator. It's not origin without originator. The first verse of the Bible, 
gives us this clue that the universe was created out of nothing. The word created there, when it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, has the sense of ex nihilo, out of nothing. This is not something that was accepted by the scientific community, uh, except in the last generation or less. Well, (laughs) it was stated in the first verse of the Bible. How old is the Bible? And is there no faith involved in a kind of science that permits no involvement of a supernatural creator God when considering the origin of life? This, this proposal of the origin of the universe, let's get a little more specific and consider the origin of life, living organisms. A famous evolutionist that uh, wrote extensively about the origin of life from non-life was George Wald. He's uh, probably... Not many of you would have heard of him. But anyway, he was an evolutionist and Nobel Prize winner in 1967. And he stated this, when it comes to the origin of life, there are only two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There's no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved. Remember who did that? In a laboratory, Louis Pasteur, you know, he showed that you can't get life out of nothing, that you've got to have pre-existent life. Because of that scientist and his trust in God and his good science, probably most of us are alive because it was his work that, that you know, developed antibiotics and things like this. You know, what do you have because of George Wald's contribution to your life? Anyway. There's only these two ways, creation or spontaneous generation. Spontaneous generation was disproved, but that leads us to only one other conclusion, that, the super, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Well, he uses the word philosophical. I would submit it's spiritual grounds. In any event, we can't accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible that life arose spontaneously by chance. Is that faith? Yes. Yes, it is. Francis Crick. Now, probably many of you have heard of him. Watson and Crick, the proposers of the structure of the DNA helix. He's an evolutionist and a Nobel Prize winner. And he stated this, an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. Let me take a step back there. So, you know, what he's thinking of, well, we may discover a lot of things that will then show how life could evolve from chemicals. That was his hope because he made this statement before we even had what's called the discipline of molecular biology. We'll talk about that in a moment. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. Almost a miracle. In other words, supernatural creation, right? Those are statements by these evolutionists, statements that you can see are full of faith that what they believe could have happened. So what kind of explanations have been devised for the origin of life? Chemical evolution is what we're talking about first. This precedes what Darwin then said about how pre-existing living organisms could then change and evolve into more complex organisms. Well, the origin of life, evolution or creation, 
Let's see what evolution comes up with. It has to be chemical evolution. That is carbon and nitrogen and, and sulfur and phosphorus and all these things, chemical reactions bumping in together to make these complex molecules that ultimately become biomolecules, the molecules of life. One of the early proposals that, were, that was presented in a scientific way, you know, saying, well, these chemical steps could occur to produce life was submitted by Dean Kenyon. And the book that he wrote was called Biochemical Predestination, sort of like, well, all these chemicals floating around in a puddle, they're predestined to get together in such a way that you would get life. Interesting concept, predestination of chemicals. This book that he wrote was a standard textbook in colleges and universities in the early 70s. The thing is, this predated what we call molecular biology, the ability to manipulate DNA, study it, and uh, figure out how it works. He didn't know about that. So he just thought that proteins could, could form by amino acids bumping into each other, and since basically we're made up of proteins, maybe that, that's how. And they just kept getting more and more complex. Okay, an innocent uh, enough idea, because he didn't know how things really worked. The thing is, once we actually discovered how DNA has a code that works with RNA that then makes proteins, and then the proteins work together to control the DNA, and so on and so forth it goes, once that became discovered, you know what Dean Kenyon did? He backed away from his theory of chemical predestination and said, well, this can't work. That's not how life works. So he abandoned it. Thing is, a lot of people didn't, and that book was taught in universities through the 70s, well into the 80s, even though the author said, no, this is wrong. Well, they had to come up with another idea. The next idea was the RNA world. How many of you ever even just heard of something called the RNA world? Good. My um, PhD was in RNA structure and function. So I'm not trying to brag, okay? But I know more than most people in the world know about RNA, all right? I spent seven years working on this little thing and uh, know how it works. And the RNA world became a very, very popular proposal uh, in the 90s. And uh, here's the, you see the book, it was the second edition of the RNA world. And basically what the RNA world proposal is, is that the first biomolecule was RNA. Now, if you don't know what that is, it, that's okay. But then RNA, because it's unusual, it has some properties of DNA. It can sort of have some hereditary aspects to it, but it also has some protein characteristics where it can carry out some enzymatic processes. They go, here's the magic molecule. It can do biochemical reactions, but it also can sort of reproduce itself. So what RNA must have done is it developed in the primordial ooze, and then somehow or other, it evolved into DNA, and then the RNA and the DNA worked together to make RNA, which then makes proteins and so on and so forth. And the scientific community was really excited uh, about the, the RNA world proposal until experimentation began to be done and it was realized that RNA, you can look at it. 
I'm exaggerating a little bit, but believe me, <laughs> I uh, experienced this kind of frustration. You can just look at it, and it falls apart. It is actually, and I'm going to inject um, God as the creator in my explanation here, it was actually created by God to be a recyclable material. It gets made, it gets used, and then it gets broken back down and then reused again, made back into something different. It is the ultimate biochemical recyclable. So the idea that it could be sitting around and making large and huge molecules of RNA ultimately to somehow someday become DNA and so on and so forth is ludicrous. And it didn't take more than two or three years of research for the researchers to come to that conclusion. RNA isn't the magic molecule. There is no way RNA can be the solution to our need for chemical evolution. And yet, you will hear even today on various, you know, discovery uh, shows and, and um, the, the different documentaries, they'll just, they'll toss in the RNA world as a possible way for chemical evolution to have occurred. And anybody that's in the know in the scientific community knows better. The RNA world is abandoned. As, as uh, recent as 2013, uh, look at the kind of things that the scientific community is scrambling to come up with. Uh, this uh, doctor at North Carolina Medical School said the RNA world hypothesis is extremely unlikely. That's an understatement. It would take forever. Uh, he goes on to, to talk about, well, now we're going to take some amino acids and little bits of RNA, and, and maybe they can develop a genetic code, and just hand-waving. There is no chemical evolution explanation offered by the scientific community. And yet, here we have it. The belief in spontaneous generation is everywhere. This was the front page of USA Today, probably the most widely read newspaper, would you agree? Now, I know that this was in 2013, but uh, you can still find statements like this all over the place. On the front page, it said, Martian swimming hole holds hope. Hope. Why do we need hope when we're talking about chemical evolution? I mean, isn't this a scientific fact? We've got it observed and explanations that fit the scientific scope of how we do science? No, we're just hoping. So a swimming hole in Mars holds hope. It was when they were using the robotic rover on Mars and collecting various samples. And in some of the samples, you know, they found uh, carbon and they found water and, and some of the building blocks of living things. So I'll just read the last part of this. A rock sample analyzed in the rover's onboard labs showed a wide variety of chemicals needed for life, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and others. And this is a quotation. If you give it an environment, life is going to spontaneously develop. Now that is, is just wild. I mean, I, I can't make it clear enough how absolutely unfounded that is. And yet, who said it? Uh, Clark Johnson, Dr. Clark Johnson, an astrobiologist. In other words, he studies life on other planets. Doesn't have a whole lot to work with, but anyway, <laughs> he's an astrobiologist. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I mean, one of the, you know, the, the premier in, or institutions of our scientific community. So, you know, the, the man that picks up 
a person that picks up USA Today, they read something and they go, oh, okay. Explanations for the origin of life, evolution over creation. Well, what does creation uh, give? Surely we don't. Uh, we can wish that there was a whole lot more in there. I mean, why do we get twenty chapters of how to slaughter a bull? I'm exaggerating, and one on how God created the heavens and the earth. He, I think, it's because he wanted us to spend a lot of time figuring these things out, as Kepler said, to uh, think God's thoughts after Him. Now, science is a beautiful, wonderful pursuit. And if there's any young people in there that would, would consider it, don't let the, the discouragement of the unbelieving community discourage you from thinking God's thoughts after him and finding out wonderful new things about what God did and how he did it. Be the next Louis Pasteur. Who knows? The word of God gives us step by step what God did. And over and over again, we see this statement, God saying, let the earth sprout. Let the earth bring forth. Is that ridiculous? Absolutely not. At least, I mean, how is that any different from what evolution says? The earth is going to bring forth plants and the earth is, they just say it's going to be by chance and it takes billions of years where that is nothing that we ever observe. What do we observe? A mind with a design and intelligence taking the ingredients there and putting them together. Now this mind, this creator, has omnipotent power. He made the atoms. How about his ability to then put them together in these fantastic shapes that work together and reproduce themselves, that digest the cupcake that you just ate? It's amazing what these molecules can do. He said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And from the existing molecules there, like that rover found nitrogen and sulfur and carbon, you know, his power and mind puts them together and there you've got pine trees and pineapple trees. You got kangaroos and possums and people. Although, you know, it doesn't say that God said, let the earth bring forth Adam. In chapter 2, it gives us a little more intimate picture of how much our Creator cared about us. And you can envision Him getting down on a knee and pulling this dirt together and forming it and then breathing His Spirit into that body. You know, if He hadn't done that, what would we have had? Well, a, a, a homo sapiens that sort of was just a little better looking than an ape. But no different, just another animal. But God endowed that body with a spirit and we then became his image bearer. And that spirit enables us to desire communion with him and communicate abstractly like our minds fantastically can do and create things. These abilities that we have because we are created in God's image are unique to this creature that God hands on, the potter form there in the garden. And then what did that creature do? Turned his back on his creator and said, you know, I'd rather do things my way. And so God didn't leave it there. He became that creature. Uncreated, yes, but he became a man to experience all the ravages of sin that we experience 
And granted, a lot of the experiences that we have are not our fault. It's because of sin. But a lot of the experiences that we have and the heartaches and the problems we have are our fault. And we cause sin to hurt other people as well. We're all guilty as we considered this morning. But Jesus didn't deserve any of the pain that he experienced. Can you imagine the agony he went through as he looked at his world and saw the ravages of sin, the poor, the sick, the unjustly treated? And you know what? He experienced it all. And beyond that, he experienced separation from his beloved father and experienced hell for us. And he paid the price. Why? Well, apparently, because what he was doing with Adam and Eve in the beginning, what was he doing? Just coming down and walking in the garden with them, right? This is what he wanted from them. And this is what they were enjoying, fellowship with their creator. He wanted it so much that he went to Calvary to reinstitute this possibility of relationship. But we are talking about the creator of heaven and earth. The one who put the moon and stars in place like David said. And then who responded humbly, who am I that you would even think about me, let alone come and die for me? You know, there's a lot of people whose response when they are confronted with this creator God is no way. What makes the difference? I don't know. But I know in my heart, the Lord has caused me to desire Him. And I do. Do you? What a demonstration of regeneration. The change, the unexplainable change that happens in the human heart to desire this God. And to humbly come and submit and say, I am a sinner, and I understand it. And once you've saved me, Lord, I know that I'm still going to struggle with it, but thank you for forgiving me, past, present, and future. And uh, we have the opportunity to look forward to someday walking with our Creator in a garden. You know, Jude says to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of his glory. I think about that moment. And even right now, I cannot help but think that in that moment, there is going to be an instance of terror. We will be ushered into the presence of this God who we've been talking about that, that spoke the universe into existence, that has the intelligence and the wisdom to speak, and the atoms arrange themselves into living organisms, and we are going to stand in the absolute, holy, awesome presence of this one, and we will be undone. We will be absolutely naked. And every experience that you see written in the Word of God where a person was confronted with the holy presence of God, what did they do? They virtually laid down dead. They were terrified. And I just can't help but think that someday when I stand before him in that moment, there's going to be this, yeah. But the rest of the verse is, 
to make you stand in the presence of his glory, what's the word, do you know? Blameless, with great joy, and that will be the moment when we truly understand what the blood of Christ means, and we will be blameless before him, and the joy will be unexplainable. The Bible talks about leaping and exalting in God. I think we'll all be just jumping up and down going, wow, this is great, before we fall to our knees in worship and gratitude to this one who loved us and gave himself for us. It's by faith that we understand God created everything, and yet we don't turn off our minds. There is so much reason in the account of Scripture, and over and over and over again as scientists pursue truth, a lot of times they just stumble into it. And they're not looking for answers that actually verify the Word of God, but that's what they keep on finding. We're not going to go into a lot of the other things that I was going to show you today. It's pretty tough to talk a whole lot in just uh, 40 minutes. But uh, I I do want to, I do, (laughs) that was a preacher that said that. (laughs) But, uh, you know, having exercised faith in what Scripture says, even concerning the natural world, Obviously, the, the, the most important thing is exercising our faith in who God says He is and what He's done for us in salvation. And please, um, I would not assume that everybody in the audience here uh, believes in creation, that, 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 uh, whether it's a young earth or old earth or, or don't, rejects evolution. I, I, don't, I don't assume that. It's not a salvation issue, but it is a faith issue. And I can tell you from my own experience I had a journey of struggling with my trust in this book. I mean, I love John 3.16. You like John 3.16? Yeah, God so loved the world. But, you know, these first few chapters, that's sort, of, that's sort of goofy. And what was I doing? I was going through the Bible, picking and choosing what parts I would believe. Who, what does that set me up as? The judge of Scripture. But... It's a, it's a journey of faith. So having exercised faith in Scripture, even concerning the natural world, not just the spiritual world and salvation, the faith of believers is being validated over and over again. We just looked at two very simple little things um, compared to what is being discovered in the modern scientific community, especially in the area of life sciences. But the faith of believers is being validated. Science, as I said, is our ally. Real science is our ally, not our enemy. There's no threat there. It's the threat to evolution now. And over and over again, the discoveries of science are verifying what we would expect if this were true, as opposed to if evolution were true. Well, I think I'm going to close here. There were a number of things I was just going to ask you if you knew, uh, and I'll, 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 rather than showing them to you, I'll just, I'll just mention, we, we looked at um, the passages in Job that, if anybody's just open, recognizes that Job's 
describing, God is describing a dinosaur to Job. And it would have been silly if Job didn't actually know what it was, that it was real. And so Job lived with dinosaurs. And yet the scientific community at large says dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. The other thing we find is that there's soft tissues in these dinosaur bones now. And so that bone marrow and ligaments and protein, all that kind of stuff, according to them, it's got to be 65 or more year, million years old. It's just like turn off brain and just accept what we have to accept to keep God out of it. Um, so anyway, we looked at that at the Bible study on, was that Thursday night? And uh, there are just so many, there are so many wonderful clues that we think that we're just researching and discovering now that God's word revealed thousands of years ago. So I hope that something that we've considered this morning has encouraged you, challenged you. And uh, I would submit to you that just don't turn off your brain. When you've learned something and it seems like, how does that fit with, with what I think God's word says? Uh, pursue it. Find out. I don't have all my questions answered. When I was sitting in a seminary desk after I had abandoned um, evolution um, for the most part, but still accepting that it must have taken, you know, God's used billions of years or whatever. I'm sitting in a seminary desk and I was confronted with what um, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and, and those chapters mean in Hebrew, that the reader just simply understood them as they're written. I was convicted of what I was doing. And uh, I said, Lord, I, I choose to believe your word. Help my unbelief. Boy, that's a great prayer. Not patting myself on the back, but I would submit to you, just pray that prayer when you're struggling with something. Lord, I believe, but I've got a lot of questions. Help my unbelief. You think that's a prayer God would answer? I believe, but help my unbelief. <laughs> I think that's about a lock, solid, 100%er. So I hope that something shared will help you pursue questions that you might have. And uh, to God be the glory. Lord, thank you for your word. We could ask you, wish that you had shared more with us, but uh, what you've shared is true. It's trustworthy. And we live in a world that scoffs. Let us bear the reproach of Christ and be bold in our hope, in our testimony, let you, Spirit, do the work. Uh, it's not up to us to try to convince anybody. It is up to us to share our hope. And to what extent we might understand some of these things, Lord, uh, uh, use us to bring others into the family of God. We pray these things in our precious Creator and Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.